0: If you don't like do your parents This is hell. Your eyewitness to grief. This is hell. And over the last three years, nearly three years ago to the day that we all went into some form of lockdown... During that time, we have all bore witness to the shared grief of the pandemic. We have suffered the loss of loved ones, suffered through the agony of both those who are no longer with us and the agony experienced by those of us who have so far survived. Despite the pandemic still claiming a reported 5,000 lives a week globally, a number that is likely significantly higher, and nearly 7 million reported deaths again, with the potential for a new variant at any moment, those numbers could increase quickly. We should still take a moment to take stock in what happened to us from the very beginning of the virus infecting the first human and what what impact it has had on society and on us. We can look back at the earliest days of the outbreak, when the only thing certain was the uncertainty, when the pandemic revealed all of the structural shortcomings that led to massive inequality, and in the case of COVID-19 death, we can assess what the disease reveals about us and what needs to change in order to be better prepared for the next crisis that threatens humanity and to react to it more effectively and more humanely. And if we want to do that, we're going to have to do it together. In a few minutes, we will have the return of, and we're really happy about this, historian and writer Carrie Lee Merritt, co-editor of the collection After Life, A Collective History of Loss and Redemption in Pandemic America, which she edited along with Ray Lynn Barnes and Yohura Williams. The collection is a history of how Americans experience, navigate, commemorate, and ignore mass death and loss during the global COVID-19 pandemic. Carrie Lee's work tackles issues of inequality and poverty in America. Her research focuses on race and class in U.S. history. Her first book, 2017's Masterless Men, Poor Whites and Slavery in the Antebellum South, won both the Bennett Wall Award from the Southern Historical Association, honoring the best book in Southern economic or business history, published in the previous two years, as well as the President's Book Award from the Social Science History Association Carrie is also co-editor With Matthew Hild of Reconsidering Southern Labor History Race, Class, and Power Which won the 2019 Best Book Award From the United Association for Labor Education Carrie Lee Returns to This Is Hell as she was a guest On the show back in 27 to discuss The book that we're mentioning Masterless Men a book that was selected as one of our listeners' favorites of the year. And we replayed that interview during the holiday season in 2017, as we do every year when we play the best of This Is Hell. Find out more about Carrie Lee at CarrieLeeMerritt.com and follow her on Twitter at carrie lee Merritt. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live streaming and podcast host Chuck Mertz, producing... Is Lindsay Gorey. Lindsay how is your week going so far? How have you been over the last week?
1: I've been okay. Yesterday I I had to get a rental car, which is kind of fun in a way. Kind but of. Kind of, yeah. My car needs to get fixed. Somebody hit me when they were parking, and every time I say that, people are like, oh my gosh, are you okay? I'm like, yes. <laughs> like
0: it, I was parking.
1: Uh, Yeah. <laughs> well, I was in the middle of Broadway and Argyle, but I was stopped at a light, so it wasn't a very high speed collision, and um, yeah. I but just, your,
0: car, your car can't run right now? No.
1: It... I've been driving it for weeks afterwards. It's oh. fine. It's just there was some damage, like there, you know, there was some damage, and it was the other person's fault. So it's and they had st- they had insurance, you know. So, so there you
0: go. Might as well yeah, get it fixed. Yeah, we
1: didn't call the cops or anything. Apparently, you know, you don't need to do that. Nope. <laughs> not yeah. So, uh, yeah, and it's all good. So I'm not paying for this rental car. No way. I'd be walking everywhere if I had. <laughs> oh, to.
0: so their insurance is paying for your rental car too? Yes. Is your rental car nicer than your normal car? Yes. What kind of it's car? It's fun. I
1: mean. I mean i don't even know i don't know but this one has a sunroof i think it's hilarious like because i i don't know being from phoenix sunroof is not necessarily what you want no and,
0: it's um, not it's like a magnifying <laughs> glass at that yeah
1: point. and it's also it's but it's funny because it's like am i supposed to look out this window while i'm driving like <laughs> look up at the tree branches like because that's what i want to do <laughs> i feel like i shouldn't
0: Years ago, we rented a car, and when we got to the rental place, uh, they were like, we already rented out your car. The only car we have, it's an upgrade. We'll give you an upgrade. And they gave us this fire engine red sports car. (laughs) And I was like, we can't (laughs) drive the tour around the all of Lake Michigan in that car without getting a speeding ticket and as i am generally holding that's a really bad idea i don't want to drive
1: speed
0: (laughs) (laughs) exactly and you want to go faster you're in a sports car so uh, i need to make a correction real quick Uh, last week i mentioned the new york times story claiming that according to u.s officials pro-ukrainian groups were behind the attack on the nord stream pipeline that connects russia with europe Not the Biden administration As has been claimed by journalist Seymour Hirsch Past guest on our show And you can find our past interviews with him At our website thisishell.com When you search on his last name Hirsch Just like you can find our interviews with Carrie Our interview with Carrie Lee By searching on her last name Merritt At thisishell.com While it all seemed very obvious That the Times story was in response to And reaction to Hirsch's reporting I said the Hirsch story was never mentioned In the Times article I was wrong While the Washington Post never mentioned Seymour by name In their coverage of the news story by the U.S. state By U.S. officials stating that pro-Ukrainian groups are behind the Nord Stream pipeline attack The Times actually did mention Seymour Hersh in his writing It was mentioned once in the Times story And that was in paragraph 25 on the jump page Two-thirds of the way through the Times story the times did not completely ignore size journalism however they did bury it as much as they could and the post completely ignored it so there's that again my apologies if i mischaracterized the times in any way as a u.s media outlet that ignores stories the rest of the world is talking about and buries the lead if not an entire story when internationally the u.s is put into a very bad light more important than my annoyance at the Times seemingly consistent pro-war editorializing within their news reporting, Lindsay, please remind us, what is this week's question from Hell?
1: This week's question from Hell, how do you identify yourself?
0: I screwed up in this writing. I needed to write, how do you self-identify instead? Because everybody's saying that they identify themselves by looking at their ID or looking in a mirror. So. I have
1: to, like, that's just... No, you're not. You're looking at your reflection in your in the mirror. You're looking at the picture of yourself in your mirror.
0: No, that isn't your identity. That's yeah. a good point. like
1: I think of this because Look people... Look at you. You know, the identity thing is, I think, really weird when you have a twin. And, uh, like, I have to remember, I don't identify myself by looking at her. That's right. my sister. Like, that's that's a, not me.
0: That's a very good point.
1: Like.
0: <laughs> all right, now I feel vindicated. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell gets their choice of This Is Hell merchandise. You can see all of our stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. Uh, You can tweet it at us, or you can email chuck at thisishell.com. As always, we will be announcing this week's uh, winner at the end of tomorrow's show, following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth. Lindsay, what is Jeff talking about this week?
1: Jeff wants to conquer the world with a philosophy of radical underachievement.
0: You can send us your guest or topic suggestions or anything you want to thisishell.com. If we do have your suggested guest on the show, we will thank you personally, just like we thanked Patrick L. for suggesting we have Siddharth Kara on to talk about his book, Cobalt Red, on the deadly mining that is behind the components in your smartphone or electric car, which happened earlier this week. We got an email from Camillo, who writes, I wanted to recommend that you speak with Mario Ariza, a journalist out of South Florida who has been focusing on climate issues around here. Last year, he and several other news outlets in Florida worked together to break the power play story about the largest energy company in Florida, Florida Power and Light, manipulating elections via fake candidates, sowing misinformation, and outright buying newspaper outlets to fight against any attempt for a green transition in Florida, one of the states that needs action most urgently. Mario also wrote the book Disposable City about how Miami is caught in contradictory forces of endless real estate development and climate change. I was born and raised in Miami, Camillo writes, and I can't remember a time when my peers and I weren't making macabre jokes about Miami going underwater. But still, for all those in charge to continue kicking the can down the road so long is still incredible to me in hindsight. I hope you'll bring Mr. Ariza on to bring these stories to your audience. Since, like so many red states that get written off across the United States, I feel like Florida and Miami are unfairly maligned as irrecuperable when in fact they're, they've, they're captured by powerful interests and contradictions that narrow our political choices to, really, no choice at all, thanks, Camillo. The Power Play story is a finalist for the 2023 uh, Goldsmith Prize for uh, investigative reporting. And as the Goldsmith uh, site states, it's a month, month's long interview by NPR's David Fulkenfluck. And floodlights, Mario Ariza and Miranda Green uncovered just how far two major power companies went to try to make sure their political foes didn't dampen their profits or hold them accountable. The reporting, building off an earlier floodlight investigation with the Orlando Sentinel, found that Alabama Power and fl- Alabama Power and Florida Power and Light paid consulting company Matrix LLC millions over a decade, resulting in undisclosed payments to news outlets. That cast the utilities in a positive light and were critical of those who questioned their power. Now you'd think those news outlets would lose all of their licensing to be a news outlet after that. A freelance ABC news producer was also hired to miss. Misleadingly represent herself and confront politicians over controversies relevant to Matrix clients. These revelations were followed by leadership changes at both power companies' internal investigations into their work with Matrix, as well as broad calls for transparency and reform. ABC News also severed ties. With that freelance journalist, the story offers a rear window into the way power companies and consultants manipulate the democratic system and the pressure local regulators and lawmakers can front if they seek to hold those corporations accountable And what happens when local news erodes. So, Camillo, thanks for the heads up and the reminder that... We should have more guests on from Floodlight, as they have been doing some outstanding work. And I'm going to try to reach out to Camillo shortly after today's show to see if we can have him on the show one week from tomorrow. Coming up, this still ongoing pandemic and what we should have learned from it, but did not. We will have this week in Rotten History. Lindsay will be sharing more of your answers to this week's question from hell. We'll tell you everything happening on tomorrow's show, including this week's final guest, Live from the nightmare of want, this is hell And three years ago, as we were all going into some sort or form of state-dictated or self-imposed lockdown We all had that nightmare, that frightening desire to possess basic needs That terrifying notion that we would suddenly not have access to things like toilet paper Consumed many of us, leading to unnecessary hoarding We were wracked with fear and uncertainty, a fear that was caused by that uncertainty of not knowing what could be next or for how long we would have to isolate. Now that it's been three years, maybe it's a good time to go back to those early days and determine if we learned anything and what our reaction reveals, not only about us, but what it revealed about the society we live in here in the United States, here to help us (laughs) On a trip down not-so-great memory lane, historian and writer Carrie Lee Merritt is co-editor of the collection Afterlife, a collective history of loss and redemption in pandemic America. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Carrie Lee.
2: Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate
0: it. I really appreciate it because I got to tell you, uh, even though it's been six years since the last time we interviewed you, that is still one of my very favorite interviews I've done in the 26 plus years of this show. The interview on Masterless Men was just spectacular, and I got such an overwhelming positive response from it. So thank you so much for being back on our show.
2: Well, I mean, the feeling is mutual. You were definitely one of the best interviewers I've ever had, and at a time when uh, your profession is under assault by the same forces that my profession is under assault, it's really refreshing to see somebody doing this type of journalism and really focusing on the issues that actually matter in this country.
0: Well, let's talk about your profession being under assault just for a moment. You are a historian. What does it mean to you when you see this attack on studying of history when in fact the the history that we are teaching in K through 12 schools is very very slanted towards a pro-american point of view earlier this week we were talking about how the united states has been behind, since the end of world war 2 has been behind over 50 military coups in which the democratically elected leader was thrown out of office and replaced with a dictator, essentially, as happened in the Democratic Republic of Congo, then Zaire with uh, Lumambe being overthrown to have Mobutu be in power. So that's the kind of history that we don't learn in K through 12 schools. You're not going to learn that until you get to college. So what does it say to you about this attack on history not being pro-American enough when in fact it is very much embedded in or, and with American propaganda?
2: Well, that's a great question. It's one that we really seek to answer in the book. Um, surprisingly, um One of our contributors is actually Robin D.G. Kelly, the great historian of Alabama communists in the 1930s, um, who has been specifically targeted by DeSantis in Florida on the AP um, work for children in high school. Um, So, you know, this is is hitting home. This is hitting friends, colleagues, people are being targeted. I just read this morning, Mississippi's uh, gonna start banning books. On uh, anything that has to do with you know LGBTQ issues, which I'm actually writing a book on a lesbian right now. So I mean, you know, that's absolutely surreal to think I'm going to publish a book that is going to be um, banned. You know, at the time it comes out in multiple states, probably. Um so that's the point we're at but that's also a point that historians have seen coming and have said is coming you know since you know about 2016 with the rise of Trump and with the rise of all the hatred and xenophobia and homophobia and you know every kind of bad thing in this country that he could whip up and and play on the fears and the and the you know the very real concerns of everyday White Americans uh, and really exploit them uh, to an extent that we haven't seen since you know the time of demagogues in uh, Jim Crow America,
0: so is there something similar to the Uh, Lack of willingness to have a, a true reckoning with American history and our unwillingness to have a true reckoning with what has occurred over the past three years. Is there the same kind of framework, maybe a framework of denialism that exists in our consciousness on both issues?
2: Oh absolutely because i mean think about it i even under the democratic government we're under right now i feel like we've been completely gaslit about what's happened about the fact that we've lost at minimum you know well over 1.1 million people in this country probably close to 3 to 4 times that according to experts um you know the kind of loss that this inflicts on every single person is so monumental and again in a country that continually puts profits over people it always pays to push down anything that deals with emotion, anything that deals with with real concerns about how this government is is being run. And this is a theme, um, you know, of censorship and of book banning and of banning of free speech that we see that comes around pretty much, you know, once every fifty to seventy five years or so. You know, in the forties, fifties, under uh, communist threat. You know, of course, in America, this was happening. It's happened, you know, in antebellum America, of course, with the banning of any kind of anti-slavery literature. So you see this happen again and again. And it's always in moments where, you know, it's a kind of a once-in-a-lifetime moment where the government can kind of go either way. And there's there's this one chance in your lifetime where you have the real ability to either effect great change or to kind of drop the ball and let things roll towards the side of fascism. Um, and, you know, we were at that kind of precipice. We still are at that kind of precipice where we can either build a third reconstruction and go down that path, or we can fall, you know, fall down and, and roll over to the, the white supremacist, fascist forces that are increasingly popping up over this country. So we're really at a, a time of deep reflection and, and trying to understand, you know, historically where we are in this country to figure out where we need to go.
0: How much do we recognize that a time of crisis means a lot for our future, that that means a time of change, not just in the temporary and having to isolate or having to wear a mask, but in the long term, that any crisis that we, uh, you know, that we experience whether it's the war on terror, whether it's the Great Recession, all these things that are recent, whether it's uh, what we're going through with the pandemic. uh, Do we recognize how important those events are, not just on our immediate present, but on our short-term and long-term future?
2: Well, I think we, the people, recognize it, obviously, and I think very much the younger generations do because they wouldn't be so hopeless and so... Uh, unfortunately suicidal and so uh, depressed and anxious if they weren't seeing this world for what it really is, right? But uh, our government and our, our mainstream media, of course, does not ever recognize it. And the fact that we have not actually dealt with what has happened, you know, not just from a political perspective over the past few years, but what has happened from this monumental perspective of loss and and, and that doesn't even get into let's, let's talk about the fact that we don't have any kind of infrastructure to deal with the fact that we don't have health care, we don't have universal health care, and we're going to have millions and millions and millions of people with long COVID on long-term disability. We have no real labor safety net. And and we've got to figure out how to actually deal with this, um, or we're going to have massive numbers of people in dire poverty in a state that we haven't seen probably since the 1960s, 1970s in this country. Um, And and we're going to have essentially what would end up being class warfare, because you're going to have so many Americans so impoverished and and so few wealthy elites controlling everything in this country.
0: So universal health care, obviously that would have helped us a great, deal during the earliest years of the pandemic, especially when we did not have a vaccine yet. We can see in other similar, con- similar nations, Western nations uh, econ- as, uh, that have the same level of economic resources not the exact same, but a uh, similar level of econ- economic resources uh, in, in Europe, we see that they had a far better reaction, had far fewer deaths than we had here in the United States. Clearly, the, the healthcare system failed us. Why don't we recognize that not only did the healthcare system fail us, but we need to have universal healthcare immediately. I was talking to a doctor over the holidays who was telling me that he works for a state healthcare system. He said, we could just flip a switch overnight. It has become so monopolized and so centralized in one private company's hands. We could flip that switch overnight and it would be a state-run universal healthcare system, and all of a sudden it would be focusing on quality of care instead of profits. And the problem would be solved he's like it's not as difficult as it used to be because all of these corporations have created these gigantic monopolies that are just as big as any state-run health system would be so why is there not a, a, a clamor right now why aren't people beating down their representatives doors to say we need universal health care because it failed us during the pandemic and there's the possibility that we're going to be facing another crisis in the near future
2: Well, that's what would be happening in almost every other country in the world. Unfortunately, Americans are historically very loath to protest. You know, they're uh, the last ones on the front lines, unless it really comes down to kind of a life or death situation for them. And I would argue that right now, especially, is just a a time where people feel so beaten down in so many ways, you know, not just emotionally and mentally for the, the ordeal, you know, the ordeal that we have all just endured, that we have survived. But also just physically, again, how many of us, I don't know anyone who hasn't gotten COVID at this point. And we still don't know what exactly that has done to people's bodies. And I know everybody you know, who get, kept their kids out of school for a year and sent them back, and you know, they've just gotten sick you know, one thing after another, all the viruses and colds and flus. And you know, this is a society that is wracked again, and is going to can be racked with with disease and viruses and we don't have the infrastructure to deal with it and and you know this is going to lead unfortunately even more this aspect we don't talk enough about this is going to lead even more into recruiting people into these kind of white supremacist fascist groups because, You are going to have these people who have been completely isolated all through the pandemic and still feel like they have nothing from government and still feel like they don't have an identity and you know their anger and their sadness and their their disappointment is just sitting there waiting to be awakened by you know a well-spoken demagogue and honestly you know somebody like desantis scares me immensely as a historian because you know he, he's a competent trump he, he gets it done you know where where trump was a buffoon he will actually do a you know, set into policy he is setting into policy things that have a lasting effect on society and it is a slippery road downhill from here
0: do you think that is the intent of those who are pushing policies that lead to inequality because that wouldn't just mean people on the farthest of the far right that would even mean some liberal centrists who still embrace neoliberalism. So do you think that that is the case, that this is in any way the intent, or is this just a happenstance, a consequence of their policies?
2: I think it's the intent of most educated people who are doing this. Um, I think Some people remain so ignorant of how things work in in our political system and how both parties are completely dominated by money. And that is the real reason we don't have health care. Right. That is the real reason is because we still have in politics on both sides. And then I think there, there's a whole strain of kind of um, central liberals who are very much the coastal elites, very much the big city elites who really don't understand what it's like to live in rural America, what it's like to live without a hospital within you know, a day's driving distance, who don't understand what it's like to live with no help from your government, no Medicare expansion, you know, uh, no Medicaid expansion. It, they don't understand on a very fundamental level what life is like for kind of the other
0: half. You point out that shortly after the first U.S. case of COVID-19 was reported, President Trump downplayed concerns, telling reporters on January 22nd, we have it totally under control. It's one person coming in from China, and we have it under control. It's going to be just fine. Within nine months, coronavirus had claimed nearly 200,000 American lives, leaving a trail of devastation in its wake. Now, there's... I try to put I try to empathize I try to sympathize with even people who I dislike and the only thing that I could think of at that time was you know you don't want to have the, you know to try to sympathize with what Trump was saying We don't want to instill fear in people because that might lead to panic, and who knows what that panic will lead to. Obviously, what it led to was people hoarding things like toilet paper, so there still was panic that was happening. So, To what extent do you think Trump was successful in not creating a panic? Do you think that in times of crisis, the government can both keep the public well informed and not cause a panic? Is that even possible?
2: Oh, absolutely. Because think about just one historical example that pops to mind, of course, is Franklin Delano Roosevelt and his fireside chats. Right. He was telling the country the, the hard, cold truths about what was happening in the Great Depression. But he was also uh, giving them hope and giving them a reason to continue and telling them what he was actively doing as the head of government to improve their daily lives. And that is something that we have neither we've had under neither presidency, you know, neither Republican or Democrat during this presidency, uh, uh, during the, the, this pandemic, I'm sorry. Um, and the lack of leadership from our government at every level has been absolutely astonishing to me. And we are the only developed nation in the world that didn't institute, you know, major major reforms—not I mean, just lockdowns, but mask mandates, travel mandates, um, all sorts of uh, different uh, ways to mitigate the public spread of this violence i mean we didn't even acknowledge that it was airborne for months and months and months after it was well known that it was airborne we still haven't installed the the filters that are needed throughout our children's school systems and and uh you know public buildings we have not done what we need to do to actually deal with this problem as an ongoing thing and it is ongoing i just read uh one healthcare uh journal this morning saying that on average, every American is going to get COVID twice a year from now on. And every time you get it, you know it can, it's the cumulative effects. Every time you get it, your body weakens a little more. Your, your cardiovascular system weakens a little more. You're more susceptible to getting long COVID and, and the brain damage that that causes and all of the things that that causes that we don't realize yet.
0: So you also point out that by February 2020, American scientists, including many Asian-born immigrants who had firsthand experience of epidemics, warned the government that the key to containing a novel outbreak was mass testing. We needed to test, trace, and isolate. But Carrie Lee, as you know, that was all responded by many on the right as those are all things that limit our freedoms. Those are anti-freedom practices. Our correspondent in South Korea, Mark Fleury, told us at that time that he was very worried about families and friends living back here in the United States. Mark told us how a South Korean had come up with a tracing app and distributed it to the public for free. I replied by saying that in the States, the government would likely overpay some powerful corporation to come up with a tracing app or that a software company would devise one that would definitely not be free and would likely have strings attached like using personal information obtained through the app for financial gain, possibly even selling our personal information. However, Mark worried about something he thought could be much worse, and that is no tracing system at all, believing Americans would simply not participate, seeing it as an additional invasion of privacy, despite already allowing an invasion of privacy on their phones or whenever they're online. To what extent was the poor response in the early months of the pandemic, the Trump administration's fault, and how much was it the fault of the American public? Did we choose not to be as diligent as we should have at the beginning of the outbreak was it the government's fault or was it our, our fault?
2: I think it was very much the government's fault and not just obviously the Trump administration but I live in a, you know I live in Atlanta and Georgia so it, the state governments were very much at fault too I live in a state I think we were the earliest one that opened up um, to business and and very much had a no mask kind of policy throughout the state except for in the localities like Atlanta where I live. Um, that that you know made our own rules essentially, but but the state governors in a lot of these states were just as guilty as Trump um, in infecting people and in even peddling the kind of crazy ivermectin and and you know the conspiratorial bullshit that was going around um, you know the internet and and being peddled by you know their the people that are are selling things on behalf of of the the administrations essentially uh, again this kind of trail of money just circulating within these top levels of government and and who gets contracts and that that's the kind of thing and Bernie Sanders has been on this for years. progressives have been on this for years until we actually deal with this problem we can never have full trust that our government is doing anything in the interests of, of everyday people. we can't have that trust and they didn't and they are not they still are not under a democratic president and again the fact that that we aren't out in the streets protesting shows how sick we are and how how defeated we are in some sense but i think it also goes to show that there is kind of a mass ignorance of like what what did the next even five to 10 years look like here because it is going to be an absolute disaster from every every perspective not just infrastructure but labor i mean it's going to completely disrupt the, the labor pool in this uh country you know transportation everything
0: is denialism proving to be a good political strategy? Is that a winning political strategy to constantly be in denial of whatever the ills are of the United States, whether it's looming climate change and already climate change is already happening? I shouldn't say looming. Uh, the pandemic that's still going on. Does uh, does that do we uh, are we too distracted by culture wars to actually recognize the real problems that we're facing?
2: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. There's a great line uh, that I had transcribed recently from Stokely Carmichael. So I'm doing this from memory. It's not an exact quote. But, um, you know, he talks about how at least right wingers know how to use power and that liberals are always stuck in trying to use influence rather than power. And I thought that was so profound and still, you know, today is so apt description of how our government, again, works under under the guise of money, and uh, until we can get that that monkey off our backs, we're not going to be able to do actually move forward as a country with any any other thing in a major um, policy driven way.
0: You write that Trump's cries of fake news undermine faith in information and media. Odiously undercutting public health efforts One of the most problematic tools At the president's disposal was Twitter Trump routinely suspended formal press conferences Regarding COVID-19 Instead citing fear, racism, and xenophobia In his often incoherent early morning tweets So the origins of the current version of the term fake news Dates back to mid-2016 when BuzzFeed found 140 fake news sites in one small village in Macedonia Hillary Clinton used the term before Trump ever did When Clinton warned in a 2016 speech It's now clear that so-called fake news can have real-world consequences In reference to the Pizzagate conspiracy theory When fake news became a regular part of the political debate we were told by many listeners and people who are close to me that we needed to be careful with the media criticism that has always been central to this show did media criticism contribute to the rise of the term fake news which dismisses out of hand any news someone does not want to believe in is legitimate media criticism a slippery slope to fake news Uh, i
2: absolutely think so i mean what we have done with language in this country in the last few years has been kind of crazy and i particularly hate the fact that we call things misinformation when they are really actually just lies political lies and and so we have to be very careful with how we use language um, and that's something that we talk about some in this book to try to connect what's going on with covid and also what's going on with trump and racism and, and really the rise of black lives matter and and that, tumultuous summer of 2020.
0: You also point out that five significant issues Exacerbated COVID-19 in America Without coordinated federal help First, travel was restricted, not banned from China But international flights from everywhere else it Remained in place until March When Trump abruptly announced a ban on flights from Europe Sending citizens around abroad frantically Trying to scramble back to reenter the United States Second, there was no preemptive national lockdown Instead, lockdowns and regional travel bans Were uncoordinated, roving and in reaction to already spiking cases, the United States reacted while other nations were doing what they could to be preventative. To you, what explains why the U.S. reacts while we're the wealthiest nation in the history of the world, while other nations focus on prevention?
2: Again, you know, get back to money, but also I think it, you can bring in the kind of two party system and all of the weaknesses in our electoral system, as well. And what that, the kind of laughing stock uh, of the fact that we're considered a democracy at this point, you know, since the destruction of the Voting Rights Act, since literally you've seen every single Southern state and many Western states impose all sorts of Jim Crow era um, ways to disenfranchise people of color in this country. You, know, you, you just can't ignore these facts that are going on, that are taking us backwards in time every single day to a more divided, more racist, more hateful country. And it's extremely concerning because, again, we're not alone in this kind of rise of demagogues and rise of white supremacy and rise of fascism. This is going on all over the the world, you know, not just in highly developed nations. And anytime this kind of happens on a global scale, it really does become Crystal clear to historians, what's going on, and and again, people historians have been sounding the alarm for years, and we are just waiting. And journalists have too, you know. Some to their credit, outside of mainstream media, most often, but you know, people are loath to listen, and except for young people, I want to make that distinction because I really, you know, I'll give book talks and I have people really asking questions about how do I maintain hope, you know, especially after you know, these these protests were so big in 2020, and now it seems like things have died off. And I always say, well, first of all, look at what's going on with the labor movement across the country and all these little victories in labor that are happening. So that's one place to look. But second of all, and most most importantly, I think, is to look at young people in this country and the fact that young white people are more politically involved in kind of anti-racist, anti-hatred measures than they've ever been in in our political history. And the fact that they are voting in ways that they do, their numbers still need to get higher, of course, but, but you see they're educated, passionate voters. You see that they're out there willing to fight and, and many times die for a cause. You know, I'm down here in Atlanta with Cop City. So, um, you know, this is, these are young people giving their lives to the cause. And and we have to realize that civil rights this this era of civil rights movement is still going on and and civil rights movements are long sometimes they take decades they usually do in this country and and so there there are times when we've got to kind of turn in inwards and and spend time on ourselves on ourselves healing and ourselves being able to deal with the world around us and then we can come back out and fight but I want people to be sure to take care of themselves because you know, the the rates of suicide in this country the rates of deaths of despair in this country are skyrocketing and it is it is miserable it's horrible there's a lot of people that feel in despair and all alone after being in lockdown for so long and after society not really you know we're not back to normal in any sense of the word uh, you know, in in understanding what we were at four years ago. Right. And and people, again, still have not dealt with that fact and that reality and and the immense loss of, of identity in many ways.
0: We are speaking with historian and writer Carrie Lee Merritt, co-editor of the collection After Life, a collective history of loss and redemption in pandemic America, which she edited with Ray Lynn Barnes and Yohuru Williams. So let's talk about that hope for a minute, because I've been kind of consumed with this idea of hope over the last several days. You write, visionary optimism is at the heart of the abolitionist project. As the prison abolitionist and a past guest on our show, Miriam Kaba, has said, I'm a deeply, profoundly hopeful person because I know that human beings, with all of our foibles, And all the things that are failing have the capacity to do amazingly beautiful things. While working in the darkest corner, you point out, while working in the darkest corners of America, advocating for the freedom of those locked away in jail cells, Kaba still sees rays of light beaming through the darkness. So earlier this week, Siddharth Kara said very close to the same thing yesterday uh, toward the end of our conversation about the seemingly unchanging brutality of mining, specifically cobalt mining, and the continuing colonial practices that are close as you can get to slavery. To you, what explains Miriam's and Siddharth's hope despite witnessing some of the worst humanity has to offer? And do you share that hope? Because I, I, I want to, I want to have that hope, but everything just seems so hopeless.
2: I think to get to the point where you really believe in that hope, you have to get to the point of, of rock bottom feeling like everything's worth. So I think those two go hand in hand. I think you have to be at a point of hopelessness to really know that that hope is the only choice because otherwise it's despair and despair leads you down a really bad path and you can't stand up and fight for other people. If you don't go down the path of despair, you turn into, you know, everything's about you. Everything becomes about yourself and your inner world. And you've got to turn outwards and, and think about other people and how to help others. And I think that, um, you know, that, that is a, a realization or reckoning that more and more people, again, these younger generations, I think, are are kind of realizing it's almost a spiritual awakening in many ways that, that we are not this individualistic society that we want to believe that we are. We are very much connected to other human beings. And if the last few years have taught us anything, it's how important those connections are and how important human contact is. And if we don't have that, our souls are starved. We're starved for, for some kind of human connection. And again, that's where this gets scary about young white men, young white women being left alone with these feelings and and being preyed upon by even mainstream media um, into this culture of hatred. And that's what I I really want to devote the next several years of at least my own work um, to trying to prevent that from happening because um, we're already divided enough. and, And it's not just using you know, intellectual argument and education to make these people change their minds about something. It's about, it's not about making them feel, it's about making them feel worth something in society, making them feel a part of America again, making them feel like they matter and that they're not worth, you know, $7 an hour and no health care. And that is something that we need to have a real reckoning with in this country.
0: You mentioned how in 2019, you lost your grandmother to Parkinson's. You write bedridden for nearly a year. Her system shut down slowly and painfully. She finally stopped eating and then drinking. Her wrinkled, worn hands, including the left hand that had begun it all, shaking slightly when I was a child and moving with uncontrollable tremors by the time I was a teen, had seized up into clenched fists by the end, crossing her body in an oddly defensive pose. They looked so unnatural that my sweet aunt, who cared for both her and my papa in their later years, wrapped a soft blanket in two nat- Anna's tiny shriveled fingers to make things appear somehow, some way, possibly better. Was our response to the pandemic, was that driven by a desire to make things appear somehow, some way, possibly better? Is denialism a coping mechanism, and how difficult is it to cope with something as excruciating as the death of a loved one, or a pandemic, or even climate change, or the exploitation and inequality that seem to be at the heart of globalized capitalism? Are we in denial of all these personal as well as shared horrors because that's the only way we can cope with so much terror we live with on a daily basis
2: absolutely i mean that's a step in the grieving process right and so we're i think we're all though mostly stuck at that step because again no one's really expressing grief in any major way over or over the immense loss and i'm not just again talking about loss of human beings but you know, loss of marriages, loss of jobs, loss of uh, identity, loss of years of loss of work for many working mothers who suddenly had children back home doing, you know, school online. Um, We haven't fathomed years of loss for children to socialize and to learn in a classroom, years of social life loss and social bonds. and, And so destruction of communities, all of this needs repair in some major way and we don't even address that it's an actual problem. And what that kind of concerns me in a way too because we know that there is a link between mental health and physical health and so you've got a country of people that are already perpetually sick and you add in you know, all of this added burden, this, this emotional mental burden of, of survival You know we've basically been through a type of war the last few years you know and and the way that our brains process trying to survive and trying to get through an ordeal like that Um, many of us have ptsd we don't know how to deal with and we certainly don't have um the mental health care in this country to deal with any of
0: it you described the last time you said anything to your grandmother by writing i told her everything i needed to tell her i told her how much she meant to me how she saved me and how it was okay to let go. Is COVID a reminder that we need to do that whenever we can to tell the people we love how much they mean to us and for those who did so to tell them they saved us? Do we need that reckoning with our emotions more than ever now because of the pandemic because for a lot of us we didn't have the chance to mourn people who we did lose because we weren't able to physically be there for that morning so do we need to tell people more how much and recognize that how much we love other people and how much uh, people have saved us because you know, prior to the pandemic, we were all focusing on you know, the loneliness that has been imposed upon us by, among many things, a neoliberalism. Do we need to refocus on what makes us happy, who we love, and who saved us?
2: Yes, yes, yes. I mean, that's what one of the points of my essay was that I was so glad that she died in 2019, as horrible as that sounds, just so I could actually be with her. And, and thinking of all the people in 2020 and 2021 that didn't get to see their loved ones, or only got to see them through a computer screen or an iPad screen as they were dying, um, it's just you know, want to talk about hell? That, that is a hell among hells, and and. Again, that kind of pain has still not been even acknowledged by our government or mainstream media in any way. That kind of hurt, that kind of suffering uh, for people to not have been able to have some kind of closure, to not have been able to hold their loved ones one last time or say goodbye in any real way. Um, You know, what a surreal experience. How do you process that? We we needed to have some kind of major um, New Deal-like thing rammed through congress where we actually put in effort to deal with these types of problems and again we're seeing those that those rates of deaths of despair and suicides just skyrocket and it's it's so unnecessary and we are creating this problem we are contributing to this problem we continue to allow this problem to to rise and it goes in many ways hand in hand with the gun violence too it's all interrelated
0: You also mentioned that in 2017 alone, three years before the pandemic, the Princeton economist Ann Case and Angus Deaton found that at least 158,000 Americans died deaths of despair. Unlike other developed nations, Case and Deaton argued, America never adopted the social safety nets that other democratic nations deem human rights, thus creating one of the most unequal societies globally. How much do we have a democracy here in the United States if we don't have universal health care, if we don't have a vibrant social safety net? How much does that unwillingness to have a social safety net or universal health care undermine our ability as or our chance to actually be a democracy? I mean, those
2: there's, there's two things go hand in hand, and they always have, unfortunately, in this country- um i don't think we're anywhere close to a democracy again i've lived in the south the deep south my whole life and things are worse now than they were when i was a teenager down here in terms of voting rights and ways that republican governors are trying to disenfranchise black people specifically but all people of color um in the south and again the federal government has always you know traditionally been the one to step in when states are doing this and and Change things and make things you know, more equitable in this country, and now we can't even count on that. Now we can't count on a Supreme Court who will call anyone out. In fact, the Supreme Court enabled this—you know, this slide back from democracy, essentially—and and so that does—you know—it adds to these thoughts of despair. Again, all of this is is inter interrelated in such. You know, interesting but predictable ways. you know we know what's going to happen when these policies are either dealt with or not dealt with um, in our government and again, the fact that all of these people have died in this country and all of these people have suffered major losses and we are not willing to actually even have a conversation nationally about how to deal with with what's left. How do we deal with the survivors because we are all survivors at this point.
0: Why are we unwilling to have that conversation? Is it because that conversation would lead to a criticism of the current system we live under, the capitalism, this late stage capitalism that we live under? Is that why we refuse to have that conversation? Because that conversation leads to a criticism of capitalism?
2: Oh, yes, absolutely. I want to read one packet or a passage that kind of Says that. So it says the struggles documented in this book are timely and timeless. The pandemic exposed America's ills, many of them legacies of white America's past sins, from colonialism and slavery to failures of reconstruction after the American Civil War. Economic inequality, racism, nativism, xenophobia, mass incarceration, labor abuse, scientific distrust, the privatization of media, dark money in politics, and political polarization created the perfect pre existing conditions for the virus to spread rampantly. This is a written record of a year marked by mass death, grief, memory, and the spiritual power of our cultural losses. It is the story of dreams and hopes for America's future. It is also about American afterlife, both in terms of what is left behind and what lives on.
0: You write that we must learn to become more comfortable with the concept of simple survival, of making it through the next month, week, day, hour, minute. This is something most Americans have had the luxury of forgetting for nearly a century. Other nations have not. Why have other nations not forgotten this, for, Forgotten this? but here in the States, we have?
2: Um, I think America in particular is exceptional in some ways in the way that we teach our history and we teach civics and we teach um, politics in this, this country. It is very political. It is very political, it is very conservative. Um, You know, the people that have the power over textbooks have and and what is taught in schools have power over everything in early life for for many of this country's children, uh, for most of this country's children. And so, you know, this is this is something that I think divides us fundamentally from other nations in, in a way that things like the fact that America can't deal with death that like the way that other nations deal with it, right? We, we don't even say people died in this country. We say they pass away. Um, the great historian Gwendolyn Midlow Hall makes that point in her essay here. Um, and you even think about, you know, Americans go to another country and they see a, a butchery or something and, and can't stand to see the animal's heads in the window, right? We can't even see how our food is killed. Um, so there's a real disconnect between death um, and, and life here in America that I think, um, you know, doesn't happen in other countries. And, and so maybe there's, in some ways, this plays into how we've kind of gaslit ourselves in a way in this country.
0: So uh, as you were pointing out long before the pandemic, there was a growing suicide crisis in the United States. What does it say to you about the United States when we are the wealthiest nation in human history? yet we are in a suicide epidemic that is getting worse, an epidemic that is not shared by other nations that are in many ways similar to us. How can great wealth, the greatest wealth in human history, and a suicide crisis exist in the same place?
2: Yeah, I I mean, obviously that comes down to vast, vast, vast inequality. As many historians have shown, there is a direct correlation. And essentially, you know, what the, these numbers show in terms of deaths of despair is they show that the U.S. government is not adequately rising to its basic obligations, you know, as one of the richest nations in the world, um, to even provide basic, basic, basic human and civil rights to its citizens. So there's, there's obviously a correlation between elite control of our, pol- our political system Um, And the fact that, like we've talked about this entire program, that the government continues to place profits over people, that we still have money in politics in both parties, in every aspect of government.
0: We have been speaking with historian and writer Carrie Lee Merritt, co-editor of the collection Afterlife, A Collective History of Loss and Redemption in Pandemic America, which she edited along with Ray Lynn. Barnes and Yohura Williams. You can find out more about Carrie Lee at CarrieLeeMerritt.com. Follow her on Twitter at CarrieLeeMerritt. Carrie Lee was on our show back in 2017 to discuss her book, Masterless Men, Poor Whites and Slavery in the Antebellum South. You can go to our website right now and search on the last name Merritt and you will find the interview there for free. One last question for you, Carrie Lee, I'm not sure if you remember this or not, but the final question is always the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you may hate to answer or our audience is going to hate your response, we have been talking about hope a lot today. Hope's been on my mind a lot over the last several days. How did you react to people's hope for a return to that normal, which was filled with inequality, which was filled with racism, that normal which was already perilously close to being a waking nightmare? How do you react to people who say they just hope to get back to normal?
2: I think that there is a reality in that statement that shows you how bad things have gotten over the last few years. And and that reality is profound and it is a profound message that people in the highest echelons of this country, that people who control things in this country have to listen to, they have to listen to this because that feeling, that feeling can make or break a nation
0: Carrie Lee, thank you so much for being on the show. And whenever you have a new article out, a new essay, a new book coming out, please get in contact with us because we have an, you have an open invitation to be, be being back on our show whenever you'd like. Thank you so much for being back on. I really, really appreciate it.
2: Thank you. Keep up the good work.
0: Thank you, Carrie Lee. You are listening to God's favorite radio show. Prove me wrong. This is hell Seriously, prove me wrong Because this is an existential crisis That I'm going through There's no way that we can be God's favorite radio show, podcast, or live stream But we are Nobody's been able to prove me wrong So email me at chuck And tell me how you can prove This is not God's favorite radio show, podcast, or live stream If what you just heard from Carrie Lee About what we should have learned From the annoying pandemic But still have not annoying and ongoing if that made you realize that yes this really is hell show your support by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus patreon podcast which streams live on thursday at 10 a.m chicago time this week and is podcast shortly after at patreon.com slash this is hell or you can just show your support for completely listener supported this is hell by visiting this is hell.com and clicking on support Lindsay, please remind us what is this week's question from Hell and tell us how our listeners are responding so far.
1: This week's question from Hell. How do you identify yourself?
0: How Let's see. do you identify On yourself?
1: Patreon, our last... Are you asking me how no, do I identify no, no, myself? No,
0: I agree with you. I, I like your point <laughs> that you made earlier that uh, identifying yourself is a lot more than just uh, looking at your ID. Ident- your identity isn't just what's on your ID you're not just your social security number.
1: I have I mean I just want to go make a video asking people to define what identity Ooh. even is. There you it's go. just like what's the point? It's I don't know. I am confused by it all. <laughs> I think the answer to this question I was is... told that
0: I have to identify as disabled and if I don't then I'm uh, you know doing a disservice to everyone who has a disability.
1: Uh, I mean, <laughs> there's nothing. I mean, I don't. I don't know. Like, I they tell they tell me all sorts of things. Like you got to identify as <laughs> a twin. I mean, I like that's it's that's the confusing thing. That it's just it is a fact of physics. You know, being born with another person is something you cannot refute. But then you walk around without them, and you know. things are different. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, it's just a really bizarre thing to to experience in adulthood, but I'm look I'm looking for the old. I think the correct answer here is body scan meditation. <laughs> like find like find the the boundaries of your body with your mind.
0: Uh, so <laughs> how uh, our answer? I'm still listen.
1: trying to figure out when this, if this is from this week. But Dan K. Uh, Yes uh, Where's Dan Okay yes We have a lot of Responses on Patreon Patreon still Yes Uh, Patrick Oh I'm so Sorry I'm reading The wrong Thing (laughs) Okay So let's see Dan K says hello Dan Uh, (laughs) uh, How do you (laughs) identify yourself? Hello Dan Mike Mike the Giga Grouch says uh, Kneeling in the street with my hands over my head Screaming don't shoot officer My driver's (laughs) license is in my back pocket (laughs)
0: Jesus (laughs) Alright that's a grim reality
1: Yes Uh, Tim C says human-ish and through a rotating list of aliases stolen from Bukowski poems. Oh,
0: that sounds like a fun <laughs> that's time. That's funny. Uh, uh, my favorite postal carrier.
1: Does <laughs> Bukowski... He's yeah. a postal I don't know. Uh, Dean T. identifies as a relatively happy doomer. All
0: right. I like the happiness part of that dooming stuff.
1: <laughs> it's that optimism thing Carrie Lee was talking about. Exactly. Like, There's got to be a reason I wake up every day. Okay. By the way, <laughs> Carrie Lee was
0: awesome, wasn't she?
1: Yeah, it was really awesome. She's really great. There's like about 20 quotes in there that I could pick for the quote. I know. Quote. Was, I know. It was all good. Uh, how do you, the question from hell? How do you identify yourself? Aristides quintilianus <laughs> says okay. i identify myself as an expat living in the u.s even though my complexion tells me that i'm an immigrant
0: <laughs> there you go see that's getting down to the identity part of it
1: uh-huh yeah uh, in a creepy way so moving on to facebook um <laughs> Ethel smith has been on a roll with uh the dad comments he says he identifies as your daddy
0: <laughs> Sweet. <laughs> thank you sls <laughs> I appreciate it.
1: and uh, this could be the last one if you want this yeah. is, i really like this response here from uh, no walk wolf okay uh how do you identify yourself they say like any other magic mushroom You want to examine the gills and take a spore print. (laughs) I like that he's insinuating that we are magic mushrooms, and uh, I agree.
0: And that we all are mushrooms. I like that. We're all fungus. Definitely fungus. We're all fungus. Definitely,
1: like, so similar to mold. I mean, the mold's going to get us all in the end. That's all I can think about lately. Uh,
0: Yeah, every time I look at my bathroom ceiling, I think the same thing.
1: We will all become mold. Will we be able to identify it?
0: (laughs) We are mold. And This Is Hell I like that tagline The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins Your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want You can check out all of our merchandise right now By going to thisishell.com Clicking on support Again, you can leave your answer uh, To this week's question from hell At our Facebook page Facebook.com slash thisishellradio Or you can direct message it to us via Twitter At thisishellradio Or you can email it to us at chuckatthisishell.com But we must have your answer by the end of this week's show When we are announcing this week's winner Following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth Lindsay, what is Jeff's moment about this week?
1: Jeff wants to conquer the world with a philosophy of radical underachievement
0: Awesome, radical underachievement I've been working at that in a radical way for a very long time Uh, We got another email I wanted to uh, read real quick Another guest suggestion And we got a special package in the mail I want to mention as well Tucker emailed us right after the new year So he somehow missed his email Probably because it was the freaking new Year's. Apologies Tucker Tucker writes happy new year I've been searching for anything on the topic of Christian supremacy, not seeing much of interest until now. Seems an appropriately hellish topic. This book by Magda Theer, T-E-T-E-R, appears to be forthcoming in May from Princeton University Press. Good luck for the new year, Tucker. So the book Tucker mentions is Christian supremacy, reckoning with the roots of anti-Semitism and racism, By Magda Teeter Princeton describes it as A panoramic cultural and legal history That traces the roots of anti-Semitism And racism to early Christian theology Tucker, I'm not sure why But we thought this book was coming out In March this month But you are correct It doesn't come out until May However, we posted it in a poll Listing potential guests for this month A poll we shared on the This Is Hell Facebook group page Welcome to the hellhole, And if you want to be part of that group page All you have to do is just uh, go to welcome, Look up Welcome to the Hell Hole on Facebook Send us a uh, request to become a member And then we'll likely uh, approve that uh, request And then you can be part of that group as well And so far we've had nearly 150 people vote Magda's book, Christian Supremacy, is currently one of the very top vote-getters So look for her to be on the show in a couple of months And if she is, we will thank you, Tucker If you want to join uh, Welcome to the Hell Hole Again, just look up the group on Facebook And send us a friend request We also got a package from the wonderful people at Wild Folk Farms in Maine They write to us, Yo Chuck and Company Sorry to hear about the back pain Can only imagine that doesn't help your sleep either We hope this finds you well Or helps you get to well Thanks for all you do David and Sasha They then sent me a box of all sorts of CBD stuff That I've been sharing with everybody I love that Inside of the box Look, there's a big heart They always draw a big heart They really like me Uh, So they sent us A whole bunch of CBD stuff I've been giving it To people who work here On the show And uh, you should check out Wild Folk Farms as well So thanks to everybody David and Sasha Out in Maine it's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory this week in Rotten History. On March 15, 1931, 92 years ago this week, a ship called the SS Viking was sailing off the coast of Newfoundland, carrying a film crew looking to shoot new background footage for their feature film, which had been rejected by Paramount Studios. The crew of a rejected film sailing Off the shore of Newfoundland Now that's a perfect setting For rotten history The filmmakers were hoping Especially if it was produced or written by Werner Herzog's grandfather or something The filmmakers were hoping to Improve their move by Movie by inserting real life scenes Of the annual Canadian Seal hunt Indigenous Canadian seal hunt that is In which off season fishermen Slaughter juvenile harp seals By beating them with clubs tearing off their hide and fur often while the seals are still alive and then leaving the skinned carcasses on the ice to rot yeah it's pretty grim stuff but it's what european demand demanded of the indigenous through trade In the hope of getting that footage The filmmakers were sailing on this ship The Viking Which was also carrying 138 seal hunters And I'm starting to wonder how many of these seal hunters Were not indigenous But without warning The ship exploded and caught fire And I'm guessing the initial primary suspect Was some sort of SEAL saboteur cell 27 people were killed Including the filmmakers And Inquiry later blamed the explosion On gunpowder and dynamite Routinely carried by ships in the Arctic For emergency use In case they became stuck in the ice Which is exactly What the SEALs want you to believe Also in Rotten History on March 17, 1948 75 years ago this week In the midst of a railway strike In the Australian state of Queensland Against a backdrop of post-World War II Rationing and high unemployment A group of sign-carrying protesters Were marching through downtown Brisbane In response to a strike-breaking law Passed by the state parliament the previous week Which outlawed picketing And allowed police to enter private homes And arrest citizens without a warrant so picketing was outlawed Which naturally led to You guessed it Mass picketing And that's and what's with the need By Australian police to enter homes And make arrests without warrants Exactly what the hell was going on In post-war Brisbane As the non-violent protesters Approached the central railway station They were attacked by police naturally Who grabbed their signs and started beating On the protesters with batons One of the protesters turned out to be Fred Patterson a member of the Queensland State Parliament, Patterson was a lawyer and former Rhodes Scholar. After serving in combat during World War One, he joined the Australian Communist Party. Throughout the rail... Why did so many people who fought in World War One join the Communist Party in their respective countries? Makes you think. Throughout the railway strike, Patterson had been marching with picketers and providing legal advice... For their effort to gain wages commensurate with those paid to railway workers in other Australian states A police officer smashed Patterson on the head with a pick handle And put him in the hospital with concussions and brain damage The cop was later identified but never charged or penalized because, you know cops. Meanwhile, while uh, recovering in the hospital, Patterson would later be informed that he had been expelled from a major Australian veterans organization for being, you guessed it, a communist. But the striking railway workers did eventually reach a settlement and the anti-picketing law was repealed. Okay, sure, fine. That's great. But what about that law allowing police to enter your home and arrest citizens without a warrant? Was this all part of some massive Australian commie witch hunt? And how big of a deal was the post war Aussie Red Scare? Did every ally in the Second World War have a post war Red Scare? I've got so many questions and so little time. Now that's rotten history, and this is Hell. Lindsay, who is coming up as our next guest here on This Is Hell? <laughs> Did you just hit your microphone or drop
1: it? I- Totally knocked it over. <laughs> before I turned it on and then other stuff fell. Uh, tomorrow, we have writer, ethnographer, and human rights activist Michael gold who will be on to talk about his Tom Dispatch article, Welcome to the Predator State, where the scorpions on the corner might just kill you. Which is about the killing of Tyree Nichols by a Memphis police unit called Scorpion.
0: And of course, as always, we will have a moment of truth with Jeff Dorchin. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap radio show, live streaming, and podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Thanks to Lindsey Gorey for producing today's show. This is not the media. As you could probably tell. This is hell. He was a farmer with a 40 lot land. He went down to talk to the man. said, I'm gonna sell you three beef
2: cows, and he said, No, you're not. Get off milking <laughs> cow.